0: Galatians chapter 6, let's talk about prayer. Verse 9, well, verse 8, verse 7. We've got to get a running start at this thing. Be not deceived, which means you can be. How many Christians do you reckon are deceived today in this nation? A whole lot. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, and let us not be the one that tries to mock him. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Our life is our fault. Where we are today, how we feel today, what we're doing today, this is the fruit of our harvest. Now it may be that something was done against you that you could not stop, that was not your fault, but what you did after that is your fault or responsibility or falls into your domain. Years, uh, 10, 12 years ago, we were robbed. Our apartment was broken into on my birthday while we were here preaching at the church. A couple druggies broke into it, stole a bunch of stuff. Insurance took care of all of it. We we weren't to blame for that. It wasn't our fault. Insurance replaced everything but the birthday money they stole and uh, I think some watches they stole. They replaced our TV and our game consoles and our laptop and a bunch of other stuff. So we got everything back. Uh, That wasn't our fault. But how we dealt with the fear after that was our responsibility. How we dealt with anger after that was our responsibility. How, we, how I accused the drug dealer across the street from doing it, that was my responsibility. Huh. Those were some bold days. You go tell the known drug dealer, did you break, his name was Chris, did you break into my house, Chris? No, Reverend, I wouldn't do that. Well, you're a drug dealer. <laughs> we all know it, you know it. And this is what druggies do. They rob people. I've been good to you, Chris. Did you, I didn't do it, man. And I said, let me see your trunk. I made him pop his trunk. <laughs> and he did. There wasn't anything of my stuff in there. He said, I swear, man, I didn't do it. All right. Still didn't trust him. But then the cops, the cops busted the, the racket that was doing it. We had a corrupt DA in those days. Those guys had broke, broken into over 70 homes, and the DA slapped him on the wrist. Corruption in this little hick town. So anyway, uh, Chris became a friend. He overdosed on a, uh, a cocaine highball, cocaine morphine, cocaine, yeah, cocaine, cocaine and uh, heroin. And it was our one-year anniversary, and, or maybe our two-year anniversary. It was our one-year anniversary. We are at home watching a car, uh, movie. It was kind of a date. And got a knock on the door about 11 o'clock at night. And the other druggie said, Chris overdosed. He's in ICU. Would you come pray for him? And so I went to the ICU at my anniversary night to go pray for a drug dealer. He was on total vent. He had a temperature of 108. I laid hands on him, and it was like touching the dash of a hood of a car in Arizona. I never felt a man so hot. I didn't know what to do. But I prayed for him and comforted the family, and I I said, was he a born-again believer? They said he was. And then I got word the next morning, they um, they took him off life support about two or three hours later, and he was dead in a few minutes. So anyway, that story aside... Your life is what you have sown. Even when something was done against you, you can always recover it, because our God is a God of restoration. But if all you ever do is sow mopiness and so depression and so woe is me and so victimhood. Victimhood's very popular right now. Victimology. I mean, right now it's the trendy thing to be as much a victim as you possibly can. We're making up new categories of victims today it's so trendy, it's so cool, hashtag blessed to be a victim, and I curse it all to hell, victimhood is pathetic, it's disgusting, it's not praiseworthy, it doesn't matter what's been done to me, I have no permission from God to milk it, or to magnify it, why would I magnify Satan's successes? So uh, what a man sows, that shall he also reap, if you don't have any joy, you didn't sow any, you don't have any hope, you didn't sow any, you didn't have any confidence, you didn't sow any, you don't have any victory, you didn't sow any, our life is the product of our own field. So if you don't like who you are, what you are, how you think, what you're doing, where life is going, what are you doing every day to change it? Amen. It's just that simple. God has given us the seed of his word to dispel in our fields to, to sow, water, cultivate, and then eventually harvest that thing that we want from his word. And if you don't have it, it's because you didn't want it bad enough to go after it. If you don't have it, maybe the only uh, clear thing we can say is that it just hasn't harvested yet, but it's on its way. Amen. But honestly, it's it about to say, but if, if you, in due season, if you don't faint in due season. So let's keep reading. Verse 8, For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. If there's anything corrupting in your life, it's because we have sown it. We've sown to the flesh rather than the Spirit. So what is it that needs to change? What is it that needs to change? Quit blaming people. Uh, Quit blaming mama. Quit blaming your rapist. Quit blaming your adulterating ex-third husband. Quit blaming all this. Look to Jesus Christ because you and the Lord is the majority. And if God be for you, can the past be against you? Then why act like it? Quit looking to blame the skin color you don't like. Quit worshiping your skin color. Quit worshiping your culture. Quit worshiping whatever it is you worship when his name's not Jesus. This whole, our culture is, is rotting because of we're victims and we're exalting victimhood. When even we sang a song this morning, we're more than conquerors. And when you believe it, boy, you can sing it. But when you don't believe it, it just means nothing to you. You're almost offended that someone would dare say, I'm more than a conqueror. Yeah, real conquerors, they don't ever complain about nothing. They're too busy whipping up on the next thing. What you going through? I'll let you know when I kill it. <laughs> he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. Now that's sowing to the Spirit. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There is this giant equation or this giant variable in the kingdom that Americans don't like, and it's called patience. And because everything about our culture and our prosperity and our technology says now, 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 well, the kingdom doesn't work on that timetable. Therefore, it can greatly undermine your faith. When we're used to Google searching something and getting a million hits in a fraction of a second, and if the website doesn't load on our phone within a fraction of a second, we back out and go to the next website, we're being conditioned to be impatient and really to ruin our own lives. Because God, he doesn't move at the speed of the Google. Now, he is everywhere at once, but there are things he does in our life that require patience. In due season, we shall reap if we faint not. The kingdom is still based on uh, the natural sciences in that there's a seed time and a harvest. There are water cycles. There are seasons in our life. And we have to learn to endure things. Luke says, in your patience, possess your souls. And if you don't have patience, you'll give up things. And you'll start to say blasphemous things like, well, I guess God isn't real. Well, this just doesn't work. So one of the things we must learn is patience. Patience. And I would also encourage you to search your life and find anything that robs you of your patience so that tra- treat, uh, trains you to be impatient, eliminate it. Amen. Get away from it. Learn to be patient with the things of life. Uh, Amazon, and I'm not, against, I'm not against Google, I'm not against Amazon, but Amazon and second day air has taught us to be impatient, to want it and want it now. To be able to sit at a red light now, order something, and it's at my front door tomorrow is crazy impatience. And if I have to order something from overseas and it takes longer than a week, Well, they know that you're impatient, so they send you updates. It just arrived in Brussels, and now it's in London Heathrow. Now it's in Boston. It's just hit the Nashville Exchange Station. It's out for delivery, and it's just like dopamine fixes as you're tracking a text from FedEx saying, you almost have that thing that you're going to put on a shelf. And then that becomes the faith of our soul, and we say, Lord, deliver now. And it takes six years. Really, our prosperity is killing us. It's killing our faith. It's, it's depleting. It's bleaching out any grit in our faith. And we're going to have to beat that if we're going to stand in the last days. So what I want to talk to you about this morning, I'm going to call this 10 hindrances to prayer. Because when we deal with the arena of prayer, one of the greatest things we have to recognize is patience. We are of the faith camp, which means we believe God's word is true. We believe if God wrote it and it wasn't a Pharisee saying it or a pagan saying it, then he meant it, God meant it. We understand there's things in the Bible that are factual, but they are not truth. All right, by that I mean the Pharisees said Jesus has a devil. That is a factual record, but that is not true. Jesus didn't have a devil, but the Pharisees said it. So we have to just slightly distinguish that not everything recorded in the Bible is God's truth. Job's wife said, curse God and die. That's actually correctly recorded, but it's not truth. It's all right, because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but not everything that was said in the Bible is worth repeating or doing. Demas has forsaken me. Yes, it's actually happened. Do we want to go do that? No, because it's not truth. All right. So we're of the faith camp, which means we believe God wrote his word. If he wrote it, he wants us to have it. If he wants us to have it, then we can have it. But we also believe we must contend for the promises that were once delivered. That means there is a contending, a fighting, a stretching forth. There's a contention, a hostility, a grappling for it. And if you don't contend, you don't get it. I was raised of a denomination that basically somehow inadvertently taught me if you prayed once and you didn't get it in three days, God didn't want you to have it. But that denomination never taught that when it came to believing for your nephew, Jim, to get born again. Because Jim was prayed for by everybody in the family for 15 years. So he finally gave his life to Christ in prison. So other than salvation, if you prayed for it once and it didn't come to pass, it wasn't God's will. But we know salvation is God's will for everybody, and it is, but they just didn't apply that logic To every other promise in God's Word. When it comes to prayer, which is our greatest weapon, we have to have patience. Amen. So I want to talk this morning about 10 hindrances to prayer. So we're going to look at about 10 or 11, 12 verses. So it's worth writing these things down because we're in this heavy season of prayer as an assignment from God for our church. But I'm hoping that even once we get to the first of the year, we don't stop this prayer. That we will have so taught ourselves how to pray 30 minutes a day, husbands and wives praying together, that it will stick with us. It's like a bonsai tree. You wrap the little wire around, you know, Daniel's son's tree. Daniel's son. Is it racist for me to use a Japanese accent? Probably. Now I didn't get the memo. At least Mr. Miyagi, at least Pat Morita was actually Japanese. Uh, Daniel's son was not Japanese. Uh, he would wrap the wire around the bonsai and then you'd slowly bend it to shape the tree. And then, after it was so old, you could unwrap the wire and it just stuck. We're so lazy sometimes, the Lord has to take a law and wrap it around our little branch and say, Pray 30 minutes a day for four months. In four months, we'll take the splint off and see if you learn anything. How many of you bet some of us he'll take the wire off and it'll be like this again? <laughs> I think some of us took the wire off last month and we're like this again, wondering why our life isn't changing. You know why our lives aren't changing? Because we're not changing. We're not doing anything different. I, I wrote this down just right there at the end of worship. And this might encourage us. Things don't improve by hoping. Things don't improve because you want them to. Things don't improve by hoping and wishing. Things improve by prayer. We believe prayer works, but prayer is work. And if you don't consistently do the work, you don't consistently get any change. I don't have time to cover a bunch of stuff about spiritual authority, dominion, and the curse, but when we're praying, we are effectively changing the natural course of life, and prayer is supernatural. And we believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm not a hyper-sovereignist. I'm, uh, um, uh, I'm not one of these guys that believes. A determinist is what it's called, where everything is predetermined. But when you look at some of the prayers in the Old Testament and you read through them in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, prayer is, in essence, asking God to obey you. And that's hard to wrap our heart and mind around. And God even said in, in Jeremiah 29, in that day, You will call, and I will hearken and hear you. Heal me, O Lord. You're asking God to do something for you. And in that regard, in that moment, you're putting him in remembrance of his word, and you're asking him to keep it. And if I might politely say so, you're asking God to obey you. Now, let's let's not be confused. We're not God. We are bags of dirt that he breathed life into. But this is the, the nuance of prayer. He says, Put me in remembrance of my word. He said, Call unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Hearken in the Hebrew means to hear and obey. You know, when my kids say, Daddy, can you get that paper plate for me, please? I obey. Daddy, can you help me, please? I obey. You've got to sort that out in your doctrine because he is God, we are not, yet we're in a relationship with him and he made His promises because he wants things for us, but he requires that we pray and put him in remembrance and command things in his name and he will hearken. So now if he's not hearkening, we've got to troubleshoot this. That's why we're going to cover 10 hindrances to prayer. So no particular order. Let's go real quick. Mark chapter 11. The first hindrance to prayer is unforgiveness. Mark 11. No particular order. Probably if I had more time, I could sit down and put these in an order that builds upon itself. But we're just going to go through these. Mark 11, 25. (laughs) And when you stand praying, forgive. The word stand there ties back into our bigger picture of perseverance and patience. The word stand means to persevere or to endure or to wait, to persist, to keep your place, to stand immovable. So when you stand immovable in prayer, that means we're expecting to possibly not get it the first month. Now, faith says we have it now. But we understand there's a possibility that when we begin to pray and move things that the demon realm doesn't want us to have it. The natural realm has to be changed. We're going to see here in in a minute in the book of Daniel that Daniel prayed and the angel was dispatched, but he got stuck fighting the prince of Persia. It makes you wonder how many times do we pray and an angel is dispatched to bring the prayer to pass, but there's a demonic force Hindering him. That gets into the study of demonology and angelology, which a lot of Christians don't want to touch because it's too spiritual for them and they just want to live the best life ever with a coffee in their hand. <laughs> and we don't do that. When you stand praying, when you stand immovable praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Do you think sitting in prayer with unforgiven trespasses is going to get prayer done? No. No, if I go into prayer and if my wife and I have had a little spat or disagreement, or usually it's just me just taking a little bit of an attitude. If I go to prayer, the first thing he's going to start dealing with me about is go apologize to your wife. And I can't get anywhere in prayer until I say, honey, I just need you to forgive me. I I went quiet on you. I had a little grump attitude. and She's always gracious to say, I forgive you. Now I can go back and get somewhere in prayer. But if you try to live this life holding unforgiveness, your prayers are null and void. Because all God's going to talk to you about is that unforgiveness, that unforgiveness, that unforgiveness, that unforgiveness, that unforgiveness. unforgiveness. Because unforgiveness is a lack of love. It's a lack of obedience to Christ. And how can you ask God to answer, hear you, when you won't answer and hear him? One of our greatest commandments is to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 2. Forgive even as God hath, for Christ's sake, forgiven us. So make sure you walk a lifestyle of unforgiveness. You'll have plenty of opportunity to practice this in the future. You might have plenty of forgiveness today, but just wait. Somebody will violate you. Maybe at a traffic light, probably with an Overton County tag. Somebody sent me a picture last night. They were in line at Wendy's drive through, and the third or fourth car ahead of them was a fat woman on a hover-round. And I thought, stay classy, cookful. That's what I'm talking about. What? What? I, if I could get back on Instagram, the Lord won't let me. If I would, I'd start a page called Classy Cookful. And I just hashtag Classy Cookful, and I'd take pictures like this all over our town just to like shame our town into coming up. But when, when you're on an electric hover-round in the Wendy's drive through we have issues. Someone like that may cause you to have to walk in forgiveness because you can't safely bump them with your truck. <laughs> Point number two. Let's move along here because we can stop and te- teach a whole Sunday on each one of these. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Point number two, disrespect in marriage. Disrespect in marriage. This is why single people, you take as much time as necessary to find the right person and marry the right person because once you are married, you can't unmarry, not easily. And we wouldn't promote most of it anyway, not unless my, my doctrine, according to the teachings of Christ, abandonment, unrepentant adultery, because if they commit adultery and repent, you have to forgive them. Yes. So unrepentant adultery, we have to qualify unrepentant adultery. And I think I could make a case for it, though it's not clear in the New Testament, abuse. If someone is abused, I would, I would not tell you to stay with them at all. Because at that point, I think 1 Corinthians 7 applies, and they are now an unbeliever. They have departed the faith. And if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. You're not bound. But we won't go into that. You take your time to get married because once you get married, it's easier to sink your life. Because if there's not unity in your marriage, your prayers are hindered. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, likewise you husbands. And notice it puts all the responsibility on the men. All the responsibility is on the men. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge or intelligent recognition. That means you're not stupid. You know what upsets her. You know what makes her feel comfortable. You know what she needs. So quit being so selfish and living like a caveman. Dwell with them according to intelligent recognition, giving honor, and here's my teaching, two points of honor. You give honor unto your wife as the weaker vessel. So on the first point of honor, we recognize we're not equal. Therefore, you double time it, man. You flex those big man muscles and you help her. Quit telling me you're a man. Show me you are one. The only person who cares about you being a man is your wife. And if you're not helping her, you're not a man. You're a mama's boy. And mama's boys need to get beat up on the playground. So women don't raise mama's boys. You raise those boys to be servants around your house and to help mama and to help sisters because one day he's going to have a wife and he's going to need to help her too. You should not raise your children to be a Disney princess or a Disney prince who are just doted on hand and foot. Amen. Ah, uh, the name escapes me. Um, Up from Slavery. Who, who is? Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington, Up from Slavery, one of the books I always recommend every Christian should read. He wrote in his biography, Up from Slavery, he said, watching slavery come to an end, he said, I felt... Bad for the whites. He said, I think slavery did worse to them than it did to us. Because once slavery was over, those whites knew how to do nothing in their life. They were all pampered, they were all doted upon by us. He said, I feel bad for them. That's a mama's boy. Feel bad for a mama's boy because he doesn't know how to do anything. This tells us as men, we see our wife, she's a weaker vessel. She's not weak, she's just weaker than us when it comes to physicality. Then again, you could argue she's the one that can squeeze a watermelon out and walk home the next day and cook you sausage and eggs. So I don't know. I don't even know if this scripture's true, to be honest with you. I don't know. Because <laughs> some of these wives, they deliver babies longer, uh, quicker than some of you men sit on the throne. And you get self induced epidurals and your legs go numb, and she'll do it without one, and get up and go clean the house. And you, you I need to take a break. You, you just sat on the throne for 45 minutes, now you gotta go watch ESPN and take a nap. You are no man, you're a mama's boy. And I would never let my daughters even be interested in anybody like you. All right. So you give honor because she's the weaker vessel, she needs help. And you also give honor because you're heirs together. That means she's your equal. In the spirit, she's your equal. In the physical construct of her body, she is inferior only by strength. We understand women's bodies are not inferior. They're fearfully and wonderfully made just in a different way than us. But we see that we help them on two counts. And if we don't do this, the Bible says our prayers are hindered. See your wife as your equal in the spirit realm, but also that she needs help in the natural realm. She's your equal in the spirit realm, but she needs help with some physical things in the natural realm. This is our second hindrance to prayer. So any one of those two categories, equality or or physical inequality, those will be the sources of stress and strife in a marriage. So what we have to do as husbands is make sure our wives are cared for Therefore, there's unity. Therefore, it's easy for us to pray together. Therefore, our prayers get answered. When my wife and I pray, we, we cover this. Usually say, honey, or I say, Lord, my wife and I are in agreement. We're in res- uh, respectful, mutual agreement. Uh, I take care of her. She takes care of me. There's no reason our prayers should be hindered here, Lord. And I invoke this verse many times when we pray to let the Lord know I'm taking care of her. I'm respecting her. You, you men should ask your wives if they, have any, they want to file any complaints against you. Because if that complaint box is full, that would explain why your prayer life goes nowhere. Amen. And most men know the same five complaints because they haven't changed. So be a man and change. Just just be different. Just cut those apron strings. Be free. Don't let mama puppet you. You know, she has those little things tied around you and she just kind of... Does a little thing with her apron strings. Be free from mama and be a real man. Tell mama to be quiet. Tell mama, shh. Mama should be seen and not heard. Oh, we're going to upset some folks. Number three. Go to number three. Fast, 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 fast. We covered that Wednesday night. Number three. Go to Daniel chapter 10. These are in no particular order. Daniel chapter 10, we cover this briefly, mentioning in passing. Uh, number three, hindrance to prayer is you're just impatience and you quit. You just get impatient and you quit. I talk about the guy that swam across the Atlantic. He was going to break a world record, swam across the Atlantic halfway across. He got discouraged, didn't think he could do it, and turned around and swam back. <laughs> you idiot. You got halfway there and quit and turned back. If you'd have just stuck with it, you'd have done it. How many times are we like one day, two days, a week of prayer from receiving our answer? But we quit. We get out of our place. You have to understand that in the spirit realm, prayer builds a momentum. And it takes sometimes days, depending on how carnal you may be, how stacked against you the odds are. It may take weeks, months, or years to build the momentum that breaks through the demon realm and changes the natural. So you have to consistently do it. You can't pat yourself on the back because you prayed three days in a row. You have to consistently do it to maintain momentum. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is praying. He's fasted, pleasant bread, and he sought God for the deliverance of his nation. A deliverance that was prophesied by Jeremiah the prophet 70 years prior. Daniel finds those prophecies and says, Lord, it's been 70 years. Lord, you said after 70 years you would deliver us. Lord, you said, deliver us now. And that's what Hosanna means. Psalm 118. Now think about this again in the context of commanding God. And remember, we're dirt bags breathe with life. But Hosanna says, deliver now, O God. Send now prosperity. That's what the word Hosanna means. Deliver now. It's a command. It's the imperative. Deliver now. Send now prosperity. Help us, O God. So Daniel's praying, and he sees a man. He sees an angel, and he falls down. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved... Understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken these words unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God. Now notice, prayer takes some discipline and some chastening. We want to just kind of shoot from the hip with some cheap faith confessions. I believe I receive. I believe I receive. Oh, no, in Jesus' name. That's just cheap, chintzy, Christian juju. It's superstition. He says, your prayers, you chastened yourself to pray. You disciplined, you deprived yourself of things because you had to move heaven and earth. We couldn't just pray on the commute and half-heartedly touch God while you're doing 15 other things at once. He said... Uh, and to chasten thyself before thy God. Thy words were heard, and I am come for your words. Your words were heard. Wait, so you mean he didn't pray mentally? This is one of our other doctrines we could probably throw in here, but prayer that's mental is not prayer. In the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, the word for prayer is an oration. It is spoken. If it's not spoken... It's not prayer. Now, that upsets religious people, but the devil loves the doctrine of silent prayer. Daniel prayed, and the angels were dispatched for words, not thoughts. Words, not thoughts. But God hears my thoughts. Yes, he does, but the devil doesn't. And we speak to demons. We speak to mountains. We speak to sycamine trees. We cast out devils with a word. We command people to be healed. It's done with the authority, not of a thought, This isn't ESP. This is commanding in the name of Jesus. He says, I was sent for your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So Daniel had been praying for three weeks. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. Apparently, he didn't even hear from heaven. Nothing changed. He just kept praying and seeking God, praying and seeking God, praying and seeking God. Lord, you said 70 years. Lord, you said 70 years. And finally, all of a sudden, an angel appears. And says, I was dispatched 21 days ago, but I got tied up. Now think about what does that even mean for an angel to fight with the prince of Persia for 21 days? Just sort that into your doctrine. Because Daniel's operating just like we do. He had a promise from God. Things look bleak, but God said you'll be delivered. The time had come to be delivered. We're oppressed. We're under bondage. You said we could go back to our land. You said we could prosper again in our own native uh, native, uh, country. And it's not happening. But your word said, but your word said, but your word said, but your, but Lord, your word said, then he starts fasting to try to get heaven to move. And the angel finally shows up and says, man, I would have been here the day you started praying. But I got tied up wrestling the prince of Persia. Why couldn't God just snap his finger? Because apparently that's not how this all works. So what happens if Daniel quits on day seven? I believe his continued prayer caused that angel to keep fighting till I got to get to him. Th- this man will not relent. Maybe that's the reason why God said of Daniel, a man greatly beloved because he just didn't quit. Greatly beloved, greatly desired, a man that'll pray and just not quit. So our third hindrance to prayer is we just quit too easily. I told you one of my best healing testimonies is I had a planter's wart on my heel in college. And I began to learn about divine healing. And how God wanted you to be healed. He wasn't against medicine, but you could believe God for healing. And so I began to believe God for healing of a planter's wart on my left heel. And as I believed God for six years, it got worse till it spread all over my left foot. When I did judo, I was very self-conscious of it. I wore socks. My excuse was I I wanted my traction taken away to make me a better player, which was partially true, but it also covered up a left foot with a lot of warts on the bottom of it. And then it broke out on my right foot, and I'm just believing God, and it's just getting worse. Every month I pray and believe God, it gets worse. I was in Sullivan County, Tennessee, during the 2000 election, and I was working on a drill rig, and I would just sing a song about the warts are gone, the warts are gone, and they were not gone. They were getting worse. And then it broke out on my elbow and my wrist and then on my forehead, and my brain is screaming to me every night, if this thing spreads to your face like your foot... What will we do? And at that point, you're so far extended in God, you just keep marching with God. You say, Lord, I got no other answer but you. Lord, it may be vain, but I know these warts aren't you. This is a virus, and I curse it to hell. and I've been cursing it for years, and years, and years. And finally, in one service, it broke, and two days later, I was, came back from Judo, and I was stretching and picking at one of the warts under my toe, and it just fell out. And then over the course of the next two weeks, all the warts just disappeared, And my feet were smooth like a baby, and they still are because I use a pumice stone. I have very smooth feet. My feet don't look like eagle's talons. I've seen some of you in open-toed shoes. You should not wear those. Flip-flops should be off-limits to you as well. Six years, because you just don't quit. And overnight, they were gone. And only God could do that. What happened if I quit a year prior? You don't quit. You don't start something if you have any quit in you because the devil will eat your lunch and he'll make God look to be a liar, though God is no liar. Number four, 1 Samuel. Let's go there. All of these are points worth studying on your own, but I want to give them to you in one big boost. First Samuel chapter 1, while you're turning there, this hindrance is called half-hearted desire half-hearted desire. You just don't want it as bad as your mouth says you do. Because to want it, to say you want it, that's the right answer, but it doesn't mean you want it desperate enough to fight for it. Doesn't mean you want it bad enough to come to prayer. Doesn't mean you want it bad enough to study on your own. Doesn't mean you want it bad enough to sacrifice. Doesn't mean you want it bad enough to fast. Doesn't mean you want it bad enough to to travel to a a conference across the country to, to learn more about doctrine. I want it is the right answer. I was with a man one time in the emergency room and he had a medical mishap and he was looking at certain death and the doctor came in and said, do you want to live? He was talking about a DNR, do not resuscitate. And the right answer was, yes, I want to live. And he gave that answer and I was shocked because I knew he didn't want to live, but it was the right answer. Because you don't sit there with your wife and your kids around you and say, nope, just let me flatline. But when he said, I want to live, it was news to me. Because I knew he didn't, but it was the right answer. We can deceive ourselves by always giving the right answer, but it always pays to be honest with God. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, this is a story of Hannah not having a baby and her husband Elkanah, the second wife, has a baby. So uh, the, 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 the co-wife, thank God we're delivered from all that. The co-wife likes to rub it in Hannah's nose that she doesn't have a baby. And so verse 6 says, And her adversary, that is her co-wife, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as she did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore, Hannah wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? And, you know, a wife loves her husband, but when she wants a baby, she wants a baby. Verse 9, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. But go back to verse 7. Year by year, year by year, this thing lasted for a long time, and it made Hannah want this baby so desperately bad It's all she could do. This is the only example in the whole Bible where you'll find silent prayer. Because she prays, only no words came out, but the priest Eli marked how her mouth moved, and he thought, this is so strange. This is not how we pray. Are you drunk? This is how drunks pray. Drunks pray without making a noise. She says, not so, my Lord, but your daughter is in very, she's very grieved in heaviness of heart. I'm not a daughter of Belial. That's what the Lord thinks of drunks daughters and sons of Belial. He said, no, 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 no. No, I just i am very grieved and vexed. The point is, she wanted this baby so bad, she sought God year by year, sought God year by year. At this point, she, her soul is so vexed, she goes to pour out her complaint, but she's so grieved, the words don't even come out, though she's trying to give word to them. And Eli says, go, may the Lord grant you what you want. And she had a baby the next year. Half-hearted desire is a hindrance to our prayers. you got to decide how bad do you really want what you say you want. And sometimes the reason the Lord withholds the answer is just to prove to you how bad you do or don't really want it. How many of you have ever sought God for something? It didn't come to pass, and 10 years later you look back and think, Thank God I didn't get that. Yeah. He just wants to see how bad do you want it. Sometimes we're like my son in Walmart. We were there yesterday, and I told the kids, we were picking up some things. I said, we're going to do something we've never done at Walmart. What's that, Daddy? We're not going through the toy section. And Liddy didn't think we could do it. She didn't think we'd go to Walmart and not go through the toy section. So we're doing, we got a buggy. For you Yankees, that's a shopping cart. We got a buggy, and we got to get some home goods. And Bud Bud says, why why we not go to toys? I said, because it builds desire. He said, what's that? I said, that's you wanting something you don't really want. He said, what you mean? I said, we're not, just trust me. So then he said, ooh, daddy, I want that. I had just no sooner said it builds desire. What's that? It's you wanting something you don't want. When he said, ooh, daddy, I want that because of the islands, you know, little things in the islands. And I said, that, that is unwarranted desire. We're going down the rug aisle. So we had to go down the rug aisle and we actually did it. You should be proud of me. We went to Walmart and didn't look at toys. It's a miracle. Some of you other men can change too. I know he doesn't want any of that stuff. He just sees it and talks about it. And I'm smart enough to know he doesn't really mean it. So does your father in heaven. You say things, you don't really mean it. You'll grow out of it. But there's other things that he wants you to have that you don't even know you want yet. You got to make sure your desire is pure. Point number five, 1 John 5. 1 John 5. This one's a pretty basic one. 1 John 5 basically tells us uh, the hindrance to prayer is what you're asking is not in the will of God. 1 John five fourteen says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you got to make sure that what you're praying for is in the will of God. Now here's how you prove that. Does the Bible promise it? If the Bible promises it, then it's the will of God. Whether it's healing. We've debated this so many times. I find it hypocritical that Christians don't all not all Christians believe it's God's will to heal, but they all believe in Tylenol. Yes. Not every Christian believe God wants you healthy, but they all believe in the emergency room. They all believe in band aids. They all believe in stitches when a kids' face gets cut down to the skull. But they don't all believe God wants you healthy. Well, just be a little more consistent in your doctrine, please. And if God doesn't want you healthy, bleed, baby, bleed. Endure that headache and those sniffles. But I don't think you have a right to take Sudafed or any kind of uh, allergy medicine if you're going to tell me, well, you just never know if God wants to heal you. Then why take the allergy medicine? If God doesn't want us to be healed, why does our body have to some degree a healing ability? Skin heals. Bones heal. Bones heal. Organs repair themselves. Your eyes repair themselves faster than any cell in the body. You can damage your fingernails, and they grow back. And God doesn't want us healthy? Well, he'll just put stuff on you, make you learn something. Open your Bible, quit being stupid. Go to church and learn that way. If you can find two or three scriptures for it, God wants you to have it. So you make sure it's in line with the word of God. Where the Bible's silent, you've got to pray, Lord, reveal your will, to, your will to me. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry, but He does tell you what they should be like. And whether His name is Jim, John, or Jeffrey, as long as it lines up with the Bible, you've got a pretty good place to march. So, our number five hindrance is it's just not in line with God's will. And you have to be very careful that you can back up what you're petitioning the Lord for with Scripture. Verse 14 again says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That means, thankfully, He doesn't hear things out of His will. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have. We have it. We have the petitions that we desire of Him. (laughs) Those are two awesome verses my wife and I use on a regular basis when we pray. Lord, we have this confidence. We know that what we're praying is in line with your will. We know that you hear it. And if we know that you, we, you hear it, we know that we have it. And therefore, we thank you for it. Just make sure you judge that what you're praying for is in line with the will of God. Number six, Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. Your number six hindrance is a lack of reverence toward God. A lack of reverence toward God. You can't approach God flippantly or like he's your buddy. One of the things the Seeker Friendly Movement has done successfully is to propagate a disease called dishonor among God's people and when god's people are addicted to dishonor they become an emasculated army when the seeker friendly church taught us to dress down dumb down dishonor down and the the pastor in his name's now chuck and not reverend or or a priest or father or pastor or brother is just Chuck and you come dressed like you're going to Lowe's on a Saturday and your worship team, you can't get on the team unless you have 50 tattoos and your worship team looks worse than MTV, unplugged. You've got dishonor. And now those people are supposed to come into the presence of God like he's their buddy or their their dealer. It's disgusting. And consequently, the seeker-friendly movement doesn't move God. The seeker-friendly movement is not changing the, the earth for the kingdom. It's ushering in, in darkness. I watched that hockey game last night, and every player who could not play because they were on the injured list was all in a suit and tie, sitting behind the players on the ice. Basketball's the same way, suit and tie. Football's the same way. They go to the games, the high school, the college boys, go to the, high, the football games in a suit and tie. They ride on a bus in a suit and tie. And our modern worship leaders and preachers look like pot-smoking dopeheads showing off their muscles and their muffin tops, wearing $1,000 sneakers. It's disgusting. There's no reverence for God. It's all about self. Who are we looking to, you and your $1,000 sneakers or Jesus Christ, you little pagan twit? (laughs) Hebrews 5, 7, talking about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard, we're talking about God, Jesus Christ was heard in that he feared. Uh, New Living Translation says he was heard in that he had strong reverence for God. Let me find it in the New Living real quick. Uh, cancel, go back. Hebrews 5, 7, it says in the New Living, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with, with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. You mean Jesus didn't automatically get his prayers heard by his Father? According to verse 7, he was heard not because of his crying, not because of his tears. He was heard because of his deep reverence for his Father cry all you want, shed all the tears you want. You could be like Esau. Esau demanded his birthright, sought it carefully with tears, but got nothing because he had no reverence for God. So we need to make sure that one of our ingredients when we go to prayer is a reverence for the Most High. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We we worship you. You are God. We are not. We're honored that you would call us into your presence. We're honored that you would meet us in our bedroom as we pray together. We reverence God. That whole song, I am a friend of God, heresy. Because most of the folks singing that were tithe thieves. You don't steal from your friend. Fornicators. The guy that wrote it committed adultery, divorced his wife, married his lover. Is that what the friend of God does? He calls me friend. No, no, there's a lot of other stuff he calls you. It ain't friend. Yeah, reverence. There might be a slight place when you're beat down and you need to know that you have a friend in Jesus. But that comes back to that seeker-friendly puke. No honor, no reverence, buddy-buddy, God is our equal. That's heresy. Remember, we're just dirtbags that have his breath in us. Number seven, James chapter five. You're learning anything. Judge yourself on these. See what you need to tweak These are all pretty simple. I think we know them by nature. We just have to be reminded. James 5, 16. This uh, hindrance just means, uh, this one is just being disimpassioned. Disimpassioned prayer. Disimpassionate when you pray. You got to be careful that even though you pray the word of God, if you're not careful, it could be very much like a religious Catholic rubbing a bead. Quote the prayers, but don't even have any grit. No Uh, traction when you're declaring them. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer. Fervent prayer. We pointed out a couple weeks ago that's the word energio or energy. Prayer with energy. Prayer with energy. Prayer with energy. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer with energy makes much power available. The other day, the other night, I was praying with our daughters, Lydia and Abigail. And Abigail did a great job praying. And then it was Lydia's turn, and Lydia looked at me. She said, "Daddy, I need help praying." Well, she had been praying a long time. I said, well, "What do you mean?" She said, "I just say the same words in the same order every night." I need help praying, and I thought, "Man, it's a smart kid." And she's right; she does. We train them into prayer. It covers everything, pastor, mom and dad, grandparents, new folks were praying for, pastor friends who are fighting sickness. They, they have it, they got, and it's always adapting and changing, but she's right. She recognized, she says the same thing in the same order every night. That would be disimpassioned prayer. She could tell it wasn't working. Pretty good for a nine-year-old. Verse 17 says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we, and he prayed earnestly. He suffered temptations like us. He had weaknesses like us, but he prayed earnestly and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed earnestly again and it rained again. Rain obeyed a man who struggles like we do. And we're better than him. He wasn't born again. We are. So make sure that when you pray, it isn't religious. It isn't, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Make sure you know what you're praying and you, you get grit on it and traction on it. Number eight, Peter Peter 3. You're right there, so just come over a couple chapters. This is unrepentant sin. Almost done. You're doing good. Verse 10, for he that will love life, 1 Peter 3, 10, and see good days. You love life? You want to see good days? Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Watch how you talk. And your lips, that they speak no guile, make sure that you're honest with what you say and who you say it to. No guile, no manipulation. Let him eschew evil. That means you hate evil. And let him do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. The Lord's ears are open to the prayers of those that are clean, that are righteous. The second you and I sin and we fall into a sin that we've not repented of, you can go pray, but all the Lord's going to say is repent. But I need healing. Repent. But I need my marriage fixed. Repent. But I need my baby. Repent. But I need this job. Repent. So you have to be in tune to whatever God is saying to you when you go to prayer because you won't go any further than that thing he wants to deal with first. It will always be sin, typically unforgiveness. So unrepentant sin is a great hindrance to our prayers. So make sure even the Lord's prayer says, forgive us our sins. As we forgive those that sinned against us. That's why it's part of the model prayer. Number nine, Ezekiel 14. We covered this a couple services ago. Having idols in your heart. Ezekiel chapter 14. I'll read it to you, first couple verses. Verse 1 says, "Then came one of the uh, certain of the elders unto me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their sin before their face, should I be inquired of at all by them?" When you and I have idols and we seek God, he's not going to talk to us. He's going to thump the idol. That idol could be that unrepentant sin, that idol could be unforgiveness, regardless when we come into God's presence. We have to be willing to drop whatever he tells us to drop. We have to be able to confess whatever he's telling us to confess. But an idol, it it doesn't even have to be unforgiveness or some unrepentant sin. An idol could be a fence, but that's unforgiveness. An idol could be a hobby. An idol could be a video game. An idol could be a career. An idol could be uh, your favorite skin color. An idol could be a cultural norm. Idols are a dime a dozen. They're not just bronze statues. But when they're in your heart, God says, why should I even listen to them? Why are they even coming to me? In our region, it's excuses. That's an idol. Inconsistency and laziness. That's an idol. So we got to repent of these things. Last one, number 10. Luke chapter 18. Feel free to go and study any one of these. Chase them as far as you want to. You'll find them repeated over and over and over again. Luke chapter 18. Our final hindrance to prayer for this morning's service is inconsistency. Inconsistency. As we said prior, you've got to build a momentum in prayer. It takes time to build a momentum. And once you fall off, Sometimes it's hard to get that momentum back. It's like a locomotive. Once you lose it, it, you got to start over from scratch and start pitching all that coal back into the engine to build the steam, to build the pressure, to begin to turn the wheels that will slip for the first 30 or 40 rotations before everything is pulled out, the slack is pulled out of the train, you hear all the creaking, a lot of energy exerted just to get you going from a dead standstill. You and I cannot afford to lose the momentum. Yet this region is defined by inconsistency. We're only consistent at inconsistency. Luke 18, 1. He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought to always pray and not to faint. Verse 2, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Sounds like a lot of our politicians. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming. Continual. Consistency. Continual. Consistency. We are to consistently go to God, our righteous judge, and say, Lord, give me vengeance. Or... We don't need vengeance. What we need is our prayers answered. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge say and shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him? I said, no, not in my region. We don't cry night and day. We cry in bursts that last two or three days and then we go silent for six months. Righteous, God's elect, they talk to God night and day. They cried day and night unto him, though he bare long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. Here we can equate faith in God to consistency in prayer. If you really believe God answers prayer, you pray consistently. If you really believe your prayers are turning the circumstance, you pray consistency or consistently. You get excited about the momentum. You say, man, I'm I'm just going to go after it. I love it when a coach allows the team to run the score up. I don't believe in the mercy rule when it comes to anything competitive. Just bury them under 60 more touchdowns. Just do it. So the other team can wake up and realize they're lame. Get a momentum going and then don't stop. Why would you back off? Why would you tear down your barns, build bigger barns, and take your ease? We don't have time to do that. You just keep tearing down strongholds, tearing down sickness and disease. You keep the momentum going. And if you don't have anything else to pray for, come ask me. I got plenty of things you can pray for for me if you got this good momentum going. But as it is, it's like the whole body of Christ in this nation is a bunch of dead, still locomotives. that don't even have a furnace going yet. And we're hoping God to turn this nation around. Why do we ever go cold in our engine? Your 10th hindrance is inconsistency. And Jesus says, nevertheless, when I come back, will I even find faith? He's asking, will it even exist in my second advent? Will there be anybody left doing the last thing I told him to do? Your heart has to be me, Lord. I'll be doing it. I'll be praying the last thing you told me to pray. I'll be attacking the last thing you told me to attack. See, we have to understand these these are 10 things that blockade our prayer. When we want to ask the dumb question, why hasn't God answered my prayers yet? If God's real, why ain't he answered me yet? Well, probably because you just violated eight of those ten. Prayer works and God works. That doesn't mean you do. It works. If something fails, it's not God or his word. You've got to be convinced that the curse causeless does not come. There's always a biblical explanation why something failed. Because it wasn't God that failed. He fails not. Always an answer if you'll seek God for it.